Welcome to the One Haas Alumni Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Lee, and today we're joined by Patty Juarez. Patty is the Executive Vice President and Head of Hispanic and Latino Affairs at Wells Fargo Bank. She is also a Haas alum, class of 94, undergraduate program. You are also pretty close to me. I could consider you a neighbor <laughs> down in Southern California. Welcome to the podcast, Patty. Thank you so much, Sean. It's just such a pleasure to be here. And yes, we're virtually neighbors. I can't wait to get in, get in touch with you so we can have a coffee or something. Yeah, I would love that. Patty, before we get into your 20 plus years of experience at Wells Fargo, can you start us off with your origin story? You know, where are you from? Where are your parents from? And uh, how you grew up? Yeah. Well, I was born and raised in Mexicali, Mexico, which is in the northern tip of the Baja area. And it's a border town. So it bordered a city that by the name of Calexico, California. And I lived in Mexicali, which is across the border. And that's a play on obviously the two words, Mexico and California. I lived on the Mexican side of the border. And growing up, my dad uh, worked for a maquiladora. He managed a maquiladora operation for an American company. I had a big family in Mexicali, Mexico. I spoke Spanish my entire childhood up until 11 years of age when I moved to the States. My dad was offered a job with this American company to come and work on their operation in the United States. They had a manufacturing operation in Oceanside. Hmm. And so my father received a job offer to come and join and bring his family with him. So we were all sponsored to come to the U.S. And, you know, as a sixth grader, I felt like it was the end of the world, like moving away Mm -hmm. (laughs) from my birth country to even if it was just across the border, really, a few miles away, it just felt like a huge change. Of course, you know, you leave your friends behind and you start a whole new world in the U.S. And it was four of us siblings, so my parents and the two of us, and and we just packed up and went to Calexico and then ended up moving into El Centro, which is a little bit further, uh, maybe 10, 15 minutes from Calexico. But ended up settling down there and I went to the local junior high and I had no friends. I had no friends. Everybody had been left behind. Our family was close. I mean, we could cross the border and visit, but we really, it was the beginning of a of a brand new life. And my dad made it very clear that uh, we were all going to be after the American dream <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and we were all going to go to school. So those two things he made clear Right on day one, and um, my my siblings and I began a, a brand new life. That's wonderful. I, I have to ask. I'm an immigrant as well, and I moved to Michigan, and so I grew up in a environment that had very few Asians uh, at the time. You know, you moved to California, but California is also very diverse in itself. What was that environment like? Were there a lot of Hispanics, at least, uh, in the community, or Yes, I have a funny story about it. So so we move and the high school or the junior high that I, I enrolled in was like 94% Hispanic. 
And so, you know, everybody's speaking Spanish. I'm like, oh, this isn't too bad. Everybody speaks my language. And, <laughs> and then I get into class and everybody continues to speak Spanish. And then the teacher's speaking Spanish. And so then I'm like, oh, my God, well, how am I supposed to learn English if I'm in like this full, <laughs> you know, immersion Spanish speaking place? And so yeah. I, you know, raised my hand and I told the teacher, you know, I, I really want to be in the English class because I want to learn English. <laughs> and he he's like, this is the ESL program in English is a second language program and everything's taught in Spanish and all your classmates speak Spanish. But if you want to talk to your counselor, you can go and see them. And so then I went I went to see my counselor and I said, I, I would really like to be in a class where people speak English. I'm I'm learning, you know, I need to really get acquainted with this new language and I need to practice it. And so I need to be in a regular English class. And so lo and behold, they moved me to the regular English class and I was really, really lost initially. <laughs> but as most young people, you're resilient and you pick up fast. And, you know, living in a border town, I had always had an ear for the language, not necessarily spoke it fluently, but I had had an ear for it. I had watched television growing up, The Price is Ride with Bob Barker and Wheel of the Fortune. And like, these were things I used to watch. And so I picked up fairly quickly from there. And it was probably one of the best moves because it just enabled me to really pick up the language faster and be immersed in it. But I have, if I hadn't spoken up, I'd probably still be somewhere else. But uh, yeah, that was the first experience I had the first day of school. I love that. That's our uh, student always and question the status quo <laughs> Haas mentality. That's right. I was born to be at Haas. <laughs> yeah. And it's funny you bring up Wheel of Fortune and Price is Right. I mean, growing up, I, I feel like that's everybody watched during that generation. Yes. With Pat Sajak and Banna White. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So, um, Patty, what uh, brought you to Haas? Yeah. So, after. Attending high school, I had a wonderful college counselor, Mr. Benson. Mr. Benson had a lot of faith in me. He he met with me. I had I had really good grades. I had straight A's, regardless of language or no language. I I was really strong academically. I had a lot of math. I tested out of math and science. I had really strong background coming from Mexico, having been in a private school. It was just really you know I was strong on the sciences and the maths, and so I was just really working on my English and, and other things. But Mr. Benson, you know, saw my grades and I said, well, Mr. Benson, I think I'm going to go to the junior college. My parents told me that there's this Imperial Valley College here in, in El Centro and that maybe I go there and then transfer maybe to a, a university down the road. And he says, no, no, you have really good grades and I think you would do great at Haas, my alma mater. <laughs> so he, Mr. Benson said... I should apply to his school. And he really shepherded me and helped me through the process. And lo and behold, he introduced me. There was a scholarship that was available and because there was an alum that was a Cal graduate who was a judge of the town at the time. And so he introduced me. I was able to apply for that scholarship. I applied to Berkeley and other universities. Wow. And I got in, and I think it just so resonated that he loved Berkeley so much. I had met this judge. He was from Berkeley. And I was like, all the stars are pointing to one direction, you know? And, yeah. and so I decided to go to Haas. And at the time, it wasn't even the business school. It was just general admission. And you then had to work your way up to applying to the business school your second year. 
And so my parents drove me up in the family van, our Ford Aerostar van with, with all my siblings. And they drove me up to Berkeley. And my parents, my dad is driving on Telegraph Avenue and he's looking for unit three where my dorm assignment was. And he is looking everywhere. He goes, no, no, I, I can't leave you here. There's too many people. I don't know. This is scary. You're you're my child. Yeah. Like, how am I going to leave you here? Oh, my God. So many tears later. And with my mom kind of calming him, you know, they were okay. They they settled me into my dorm. And, and then it was time for them to go. And I still remember waving and all my siblings' faces covered in tears and my parents covered in tears. And I like was trying to just keep a, a strong face and and smile. But, you know, as soon as they kind of turned the corner, I went upstairs and I cried my eyes out <laughs> for hours. <laughs> and I was like, that's it. This is it. This is home. And I'm on my own now. So we'll see how we do. <laughs> it's a giant leap of faith. <laughs> it's an interesting story, I feel like, in two parts. One, we've always celebrated Latinx month on, on this podcast, but we just started last month having conversations with first-generation immigrants. And some of the stories that we hear, especially, I think, with immigrant families, is how traditional and resistant sometimes parents are with their kids leaving yeah. or going to school far away. But it sounds like your parents were pretty progressive. I mean, they didn't, it didn't sound like they, they, obviously, they were a little bit distressed, but yeah, well, it helped that they both were teachers. My dad's an engineer, but then he also taught at university. And so he had been immersed in the university system by his teaching. And my mom was a teacher at a grade school. And so education was always really important to them. And so and my dad, like I mentioned to you earlier, he made it very clear, you guys are going to go to school and <laughs> you're going to achieve your American dream. And so there was no question that I was going to go to school. It's just where. And I think that their initial thoughts were, if well, if I go to a junior college that's there, and then I kind of slowly, you know, maybe move to San Diego, right? Like maybe where it's an <laughs> hour and a half away, not, you know, seven hours away. Yeah. But I just like ripped that Band-Aid and I'm like, I'm going to Cal. <laughs> so That's funny. Yeah, they were they were shocked to say the least, but they went along with it. It, it was a difficult step, but the beauty of it, Sean, is that I then brought my sister, who's five years my junior, I brought my sister to school with me in the summers when she was off from school, and I exposed her to Berkeley and the beautiful campus and everything. And so she ended up going to college at Berkeley and is now an attorney and works at Microsoft and is doing really well. But uh, I think that it really helped to kind of just set the path and open the floodgates, you know, for my siblings so that they could also pursue their dreams. And I think it was easier once they went to school than when I, you know, I was the first one to leave. So that's amazing. Did you go to Berkeley with the intention of going to the business school? How did you come to pick a business degree? Yeah. So what I knew is that my dad as as he worked his business. So the maquiladora is a small business, right? And so I used to go into the office and I used to do his payroll and I loved, you pay payroll in cash in Mexico, right? So you had little envelopes and I had to put a certain amount of money <laughs> and I would love to do the weekly payroll. 
And then, of course, at the very end, with the last envelope, I'm like, I'm short to whatever it was, you know. And then my dad would go into his wallet and take out the money and give it to me. And he's like, okay, you're not taking care of everybody. And I would say, well, dad, why are you putting money from your wallet into this payroll? Why don't you get a loan from a bank? And my dad would say, oh, my gosh, no, that is like super impossible and there's no loans to be had. And so we'll just make it work this way. And it just, you know, was it, I, I remember that, that, you know, it was hard for my dad to access capital. And I, it was, it was hard to get a loan from a bank, particularly in a third world country. But as we kind of came to the U.S. and, and I saw more, I thought, oh, you know, it's very important for small businesses to have funding. And so I always knew I wanted to be a banker. It's almost like, since I was a kid, you know, I was the bank at Monopoly. I was the bank if we played, you know, like little store. I was always yeah. the bank. I always handled the cash and I always had money. I would save my money from birthdays and things. I would lend my money if my grandmother was short or whatever. And then she would pay me back. And if I'd give her $20, she'd give me back 21 or 22 And she taught me about interest when I was a little girl. I always wanted to go into finance. And so I I went to Cal thinking I wanted to definitely get an accounting or a finance degree. And so I knew I wanted to apply to the business school. And at the time, you know, when I applied to Haas, I was one of maybe four Hispanics in the business school. It was small. <laughs> we all found each other. I mean, a lot of people ended up in other majors, PEIS, uh, Political Economy of Industrial Societies, Econ, you know, if they didn't get accepted into Haas. And so when I got accepted, I thought, oh my goodness, this is phenomenal. But then I thought, oh my goodness, I'm at Haas. It's super competitive, you know, and I, and this is such a wonderful school and I got to make sure I do my best. And it was a shocker to me when I got to college because honestly, I felt like I was so good at grades, you know, in high school. And then I get to college and it's like, I have 30 hours a week of work study and I'm in a kind of a new environment, learning how to be an adult and a grown up. And I started getting, you know, I got some B's and I was like, wait a minute, I can't even deal. Like I'd never seen a B in my transcript in my life. And so it was a learning experience, but I did well enough that I was accepted into the business school. And then I just pursued accounting and finance and I, I was just really fortunate to be in the program. And, and then I ended up being roommates with the other three Latinos that <laughs> were in the business school. <laughs> so, you know, we had a good support system and we got through it, but it was definitely a challenging time, just keeping balance between work and, you know, my parents, my dad with a single salary for four kids, you know, it wasn't really a possibility for him to be paying for all my stuff for school. So, I had some student loans, but I also had some help, Pell Grants and Cal Grants and all this stuff. So I'm in the Alumni Association, and I've been giving for 25 years because the scholarships I received when I was at Haas from the Alumni Association were crucial to me getting through school and my, my books and all that. It was definitely a learning experience, and you grow up quick when you when you have to you know, work and you're in charge of yourself. You know, your parents are no longer there to tell you what to do or what not to do. And so you have to figure it out and be responsible. Yeah, that's very true. I don't miss those days. <laughs> now, now that I feel like, you know, I have my life together of sorts. <laughs> yes. No, it's, it was definitely, I, I look back to it very fondly because I made some lifelong friends at Cal. 
I loved our school. I loved Haas. I just loved my entire experience. I wouldn't change anything for the world. And it taught me a lot. It taught me to be resilient. It taught me to be hardworking, dedicated. And, you know, when I graduated, I had my my pick of jobs. I mean, between investment banking, which I didn't, I knew I didn't want to do, but between accounting and banking jobs, I had, I don't know, six or seven offers, you know, and I was thrilled. I mean, that I would be making as much as my dad was making. Yeah. Who had worked his entire life. So it was life-changing. That's amazing. So how did you get into your current line of work, ultimately? Yeah. So Wells Fargo was actually a company that was constantly on campus. And I was part of the Undergraduate Minority Business Association. They would host a workshop for us. They would come recruit. They would come socialize. The recruiters would come socialize with the students. And I got to meet a couple of the recruiters from Berkeley and Sandra Banks Loggings and Laurel Covington. And they were just lovely ladies. I think they took an interest in me. I think they saw how hungry I was to have a good job. And I had worked two summers at Chevron Corporation through the Inroads program. So it was a program that was like a college internship program and you got paid and I needed to make money over the summer so I can actually, you know, save it for to live over the year. And so I worked my summers and so they they just saw I was always juggling a lot and somehow never dropped the balls. And so they took an interest and they started recruiting me right out of school. What were some of the um, hardest challenges that you encountered early in your career? Yeah, I think early on, I think I was really more excited than anything else to go into this field of banking. What I really wanted was apply my my accounting and finance skills and then interact with people. And you know, this platform would allow me to do that. But I think some of the challenges were just really being in, in a fully corporate environment, you know, understanding how to interact with clients and how to take care of their financial needs. I mean, it's not something you come into banking knowing and understanding and you have to really forge relationships. And many times you have to call on someone 10 times before they even take a meeting or really want to speak to you about their financial needs. And so I learned early on that banking was a relationship business and I needed to figure out how to appeal to my clients. And what that brought out was that I was particularly good at taking care of people's needs. And so therefore that made me a good banker. And I also was fully bilingual. And so clients that were Hispanic would take an immediate liking to me (laughs) (laughs) and they would talk to me in Spanish and I would talk to them in Spanish about all their needs. And and suddenly they were referring me their uncle and their abuela and their, you know, cousin. And, you know, <laughs> it was like the never ending referral funnel, uh, which I loved. And so that made me experience some early success in my career because I was really good at business, bringing in business and, yeah. and also cultivating those existing relationships. But I think that needless to say, banking is a male dominated industry. And so, I would definitely get recognized. But early on and when you're young, you don't necessarily know how to advocate for yourself, how to advocate for a promotion or a title. Those are things you you learn maybe later in life or when you have a mentor or someone that's, you know, assisting you in trying to figure out these things. So I think that 
for me, luckily, I was working hard enough and the results kind of spoke for themselves. So I would get the recognition. But then as I kind of moved up the corporate ladder, things got a little bit more interesting, more political and, and more interesting. But what I always tell my mentees, and I and I have a lot of them, but what I tell them is there's no substitution for hard work. The number one thing to get noticed first is that you're doing an excellent job, right? You're bringing it, you're coming in with lots of energy, very dedicated. I mean, I would be the last one to leave the office almost every day. I would do extra things in the office that would be good for other people. Like I rearranged our whole office supply room, which was a disaster and nobody could find a thing. (laughs) And I just like stayed three different nights in a row and I organized the entire thing and labeled everything and people came in and they like literally started applauding. (laughs) 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 And you do those things and you, you get noticed. Yeah. You brought up a couple of really good points and uh, you already answered some of the questions I want to ask you. First and foremost around, you know, what it was like in the 90s. You had mentioned at Haas, right? You were one of the four Hispanic students at Haas. I imagine going into banking, being Hispanic and and being female, you know, I was wondering what that environment was like. And you kind of spoke to that a little bit. But your example of how you being able to connect with Hispanic clientele was just, I think it's so telling of why diversity is so important. Yes, absolutely. Right. And the fact that having you, you know, at Wells Fargo allowed you to connect with more diverse clients and bring in more business for the bank. I don't think there's a better example than that (laughs) that you brought up. Well, it was, you know, I think that I used my Latinidad as a point of pride in my career development. I am proud of being Latina. I am proud that I speak two languages. That's like a superpower. I really wanted to leverage that to the advantage of the organization. And I think I proved to them that it was successful. And in fact, you know, I would go on to launch many years later, the first diverse segments program in commercial banking, completely dedicated at attracting and retaining clients that are women-owned and diverse-owned and fully dedicated to them. And the reason I did that, that was seven or eight years ago, we were pioneers in the space is because I saw that the composition of my clients was increasingly diverse. As I was acquiring clients and bringing them to the firm, there were so many women, there were so many diverse people. I was in Southern California. I mean, it's so diverse here. And so it really opened my eyes that we were getting our fair share of these clients without even doing anything different. We weren't culturally sensitive in a way from from a business acquisition standpoint. And I just wondered like how much more business we could get if we did it right, right? If we actually came to clients in a culturally relevant way, if we recruited talent that looked like our client base, how much more successful could we be? And that was the basis of me launching Diverse Segments, which you know, really propelled my career to new heights at Wells Fargo. You know, you just made me realize that I think a lot of businesses, they get tunnel vision, right? They have one kind of customer base and- One size fits all, yeah. They just think, all right, well, let's just keep serving this without realizing, oh, there's other types, you know, of customers out there. And, you know, the fact that you were 
really, again, question, I hate, Yes. sometimes I hate bringing this up over and over again, but yeah, really question the status quo, right? And, and seeing, wow, look at this other opportunity. How can we connect with these people? It, it's just such an amazing skill to have. Thank you. And, and one of the things I knew, Sean, is that in order for me to resonate with my Caucasian male boss, I had to come to him with ideas that made sense and that were based on true data, right? So hmm. what I did is I did it in, in the weekends and in the evenings, I started researching the shift in demographics our country has experienced. And I started researching the shift in demographics of entrepreneurs. And I started researching and finding that Latinas and women were starting businesses at you know, twice the rate, three times the rate of other segments. And what I realized is that, and this was eight years ago or more, and what I realized is that, wow, the numbers are just tremendous. And so I put together pie charts. I put together this whole presentation. I call this my Shark Tank moment. I went to San Francisco to the head of the commercial (laughs) bank, and I said, look at all this. Look at the future. This is the future. We don't succeed as an organization if we don't serve these growing markets. And I just put it out there. And I said, and this is all based on data and evidence. And, you know, here's all my sources. And man, oh man, was he impressed. And he's like, why are we doing this? Why aren't my strategy people telling me I need to go after this? And I said, well, I have no idea. Maybe you need new strategy people. But <laughs> the point is, is I'd like to do this. I'd like to do this. And so that's how I got my job. <laughs> that's amazing. So what is, tell us a little bit about your job now and the wonderful work that you do. So back then I led the diverse segments work for Wells Fargo, which in commercial banking, which is basically serving all of our clients who are women owned or led and minority owned and led companies and figuring out how to deliver the power of the bank and, you know, the financial services and products to them and service their needs, uh, help them meet their financial objectives. About two months ago, three months ago, I was fortunate enough to be asked to take on a new role within the bank, which is head of Hispanic and Latino affairs. I think that my early success as a banker in the Latino community gave me a lot of visibility in this community. And I am very active within the community doing financial literacy workshops, how to get a loan approved, you know, how to put a set of projections. I I really always coached and mentor business owners in trying to land their first bank loan. And so I became very well known in the community. Some people call me the people's banker. I mean, it's been a, a wonderful experience to try to really get the bank, a you know, huge bank like Wells Fargo, to realize the power of serving our diverse communities. And so That was what I did. And so they've asked me now to oversee all the Hispanic and Latino work across the bank, across all of our lines of business. So whether it's consumer or mortgage or small business or large business, uh, corporate, et cetera, I'm involved in some way, shape or form, identifying ways in which we can serve these clients better. If there's any product gaps, you know, bracing those, et cetera. I'm also always in the community. So I do a lot of public speaking I'm often doing welcome remarks for a lot of events and doing really great things where we show up for our community. And then lastly, they've asked me to also help the bank increase the number of Latinos in senior leader roles. So like two down from our CEO, 
two and three steps down from our CEO. How do we increase the number of Hispanics in senior leadership? I am the highest ranking Latina at the company. There is plenty of room at the table to bring others along. And so I'm working really diligently on figuring out, identifying the talent that we have, retaining the talent that we have, and also recruiting Hispanics into Wells Fargo. Because Hispanics are the number one minority at Wells Fargo, at about 16% of the population, of the employee population, but they're 20% of our incoming hires. Wow. So it's a, you know, it's a really important segment that we lean on. And then from a client standpoint, our business with Hispanic business owners has really increased over the last five, seven years. And we see how, based on all this demographic work that I love to do, there is no stopping it. <laughs> there is, there is, and there's just going to continue to get bigger. And so I'm excited to lead that work. From what I just heard, my mind just exploded because <laughs> I, I can't even grasp all the, the hats that you're wearing and the roles that you're serving. And it sounds like there's definitely room at the table to support and, and help you, right? <laughs> my favorite thing, honestly, like if I do anything else career-wise is to bring others up with me. And that is... That is what I live for. I love coaching and mentoring young students. I actually just coached one of my mentees getting accepted into the full-time Haas MBA program. Wow. Okay. And she's <laughs> going to get started here in a few months, and I'm so excited for her. So it's, you know, really being there. I think you mentioned you volunteer or serve on uh, boards and things like that. Oh, yeah, that too, Sean. I am uh, prolific in some of my board appointments. I, I sit on the board of the United States Hispanic Chambers of Commerce, representing millions of Hispanic businesses. So I just started my term there. I just finished my term as chair of CASA of Orange County, which is a, a foster youth support organization. I also serve on Chapman University's Board of Governors. And then I serve on my daughter's foundation school board, uh, raising money for kids that are not able to to pay their way for this charter school and to to give them full rides. And so, wow. yeah, that's what I do in my spare, spare time. <laughs> I was going to ask, do you sleep? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> About six hours a day. <laughs> <laughs> you must be like Hermione Granger. You have that magical charm that allows you to double yourself. <laughs> It would be nice sometimes to clone myself, but I <laughs> I do like to spend time doing these other things for the community and obviously for my children. My parents, you know, they were always there and we have a beautiful foundation as a Hispanic family where family's at the center of everything we do and we show up for each other. And so we do a lot of family things. We love to cook and we love to eat. So, you know, what's not to like? <laughs> That reminds me of an, uh, of an interesting question I, I've been enjoying asking, which is, you know, what are some, and this is a, this is kind of a pretty tough question in my opinion, what are some traditions or family traditions especially that you have preserved from your parents and what are some things that, you know, you've changed, right, from the way that your parents had raised you and your siblings? Sure. Well, I think from a preservation standpoint, one of the biggest things has been our cuisine. I'm a pretty good cook. I am the keeper of all my grandmother's recipes. I spent a lot of time as a child Love it. making tamales for Christmas and making mole and not 
out of the bottle or the can. Making mole. Yeah, not out of the can or the, wow. you know, where you take the seeds and the chocolate and everything. Yeah, yeah. And the peppers and, and prepare it from scratch. And so I think for me, teaching my kids how to cook has been an important endeavor in keeping our tradition. And my kids celebrate holidays that most people here don't celebrate. So like, you know, on uh, the beginning of January, we have La Rosca de Reyes, which is the Three Kings bread. And we celebrate the coming of the Three Kings for the baby Jesus. And there's this round ring looking bread and little baby Jesuses are hidden within it. And whoever gets the baby Jesus is going to be assured, you know, good luck and prosperity, but also has to throw a party on the 2nd of February, which happens to be my birthday. So whomever gets the baby Jesus is always throwing my birthday party, essentially. <laughs> and so that tradition I, I have not let go of and it's something we we keep up with. And so a lot of it isn't, you know, and we are fairly conservative natured families. My daughter's like, well, mom, my curfew is an hour earlier than all of my friends or two hours earlier. And I'm sitting, well, yeah, I'm sorry. That's just the way it goes. <laughs> So, you know, you take the good and the bad, but anyhow, so that's been some of the preserve things. And then the things that we've done different is I think we've really welcomed and enjoyed the new traditions of this country. And so celebrating like 4th of July is a big deal in our in our family. We go all out, we all dress up in red, white, and blue. And we have uh, the fireworks show that we always go see here in our neighborhood. And we bake cupcakes and barbecue hamburgers. And we enjoy it so, so much. And we invite neighbors along. And so we've kind of picked up and we don't let go of those traditions either. So it's such a nice blend of both cultures that my kids get to grow up and be completely bicultural. I love it. You know, how can listeners support you in your work? Yeah. Well, I think the work that I do is really something that's going to be the catalyst to enable minority business owners to, I mean, my goal is to have no access to capital gap, right? So that that any business owner can get the financing they need and there's no bias in the decisioning process that leads to them getting turned down for a loan. And that's not going to be something that's maybe going to be solved in my lifetime, but I'm damn going to try really hard to help (laughs) it along. And I would say for your listeners, I think anything that you can do where you could really make an impact, a positive impact, and it doesn't have to be in the financial industry, but just anything, you know, your extracurricular activities, anything in your life, helping young Haas students, you know, find their way around and at school and supporting them. Anything you can do to improve and help this world, it's just that multiplier effect. I don't think people realize whether you have five minutes or five hours to do something good for somebody else. It will be a much better world for our children if we teach them to be that way and if we encourage that and if we ourselves lead by example and do that. And so be passionate about doing that and serving your communities. I think it's such a wonderful thing to see and to experience and teach your young ones to do it early on too. Your quality of life will also improve because- Absolutely. What I learn in life is that what goes around comes around and and so many blessings have come into my life. Meeting you, Sean, today, just, you know, so many blessings come into our lives that we, that I'm so grateful for. And I think that the only way that I feel 
I can give back is by really supporting all those young people and students and helping them. They kind of know innately sometimes what to do, but sometimes it makes all the difference if they can ask you something and you can help with something. So I think coaching and mentoring, if you have an opportunity to do that, you get as much out of it as you put into it. Agreed. And for any listeners that you know may be interested in that uh, and have questions about how to engage, I think just reach out to the school. The school is always looking for, or your local alumni chapter, they're always looking for mentors. Absolutely. That's a great way to get started. Easy way, I should say. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. In a fun way. Yeah. Well, I, I know you're going to ask me this question because I've seen some of your podcasts, which is, is there any, anything else that you haven't asked me? <laughs> I was just going to ask that. You're too good. So what haven't I asked you yet, Patty? <laughs> well, you know, the last time I was at Haas. I think it's like a fun question, right, for us graduates, because, you know, you don't set foot into campus very often. But the last time I came to Haas is because I was told that the school was running this campaign at the business school of highlighting notable students that had had an interesting career path. And they took our photos, and then they told me that I needed to come to Haas to see this product. And so I'm going to the school and I'm, you know, reminiscing. And I never got to be at the Haas Business School, the new beautiful school, the way it is. I was at Burroughs Hall yeah. where it was old and you know, it was so long ago. Yeah, that was, you were, I think you were before Chite. Yes. Definitely before Chu, but before Chite, right? Totally, totally. So, you know, old, old, you know. And so coming into this beautiful school, the two bears that are like the statue of the two bears, I was just mesmerized by it. I'm, I'm going through the, the arches and the gateways and the hallways. And it was just such a wonderful feeling, such a, it warmed my heart in such a way. And then I'm looking and there's the, like the Wells Fargo room and, you know, I'm sure there's like a Bank of America room <laughs> and all this stuff. But, <laughs> you know, I'm looking at all this stuff and I'm just like, oh my God, this is just so incredible. And then lo and behold, I turn around and I'm with a friend of mine and we look to the right and there's Patty's face plastered on the wall. <laughs> and the quote was uh, that I brought an emphasis into minorities and into minority-owned businesses to big banking, right? And so it was an interesting experience to go through that and to see your face in, in a wall where, you know, of an institution that you respect so much and that I'm so fond of was pretty incredible. So I think you should ask in your podcast now forever, when was the last time they- <laughs> You were at Haas. <laughs> that we were at Haas. <laughs> well, I love how we're wrapping up this this podcast because- not only did you come full circle from kind of that that dream, right? Seeing your your dad not believing, you know, even knowing how to get a loan or thinking that he could get a loan, to now helping immigrants and Latinx and, and underserved people get loans. But the second thing was just, you know, how the school itself also helped you on that career path to realize your dream. Yeah. And I think that's that's really beautiful. It is. That's why I love. Yeah. I love Haas. I love Cal. Go Bears forever. <laughs> Go Bears. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much, Patty, for coming on the podcast today. It was a real pleasure talking to you. Yes. Thank you, Sean. It was so easy. Thank you for being so welcoming. And I look forward to hopefully meeting in person soon. Yeah, absolutely. 
Thanks again for tuning in to this episode of the One Haas Podcast. If you enjoyed our show today, please remember to hit that subscribe or follow button on your favorite podcast player. We'd also really appreciate you giving us a five-star rating and review. If you're looking for more content, please check out our website at haas.fm. That's spelled H-A-A-S.fm. There, you can subscribe to our monthly newsletter and check out some of our other Berkeley Haas podcasts. And until next time, go Bears.